You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates, that rejoices in the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise and potential of Judaism in the Catholic Church and the sacraments. Uh, I am going to do today's show a little bit differently than my normal pattern. Um, I don't talk much about my own conversion experience on the show. Uh, for one thing, I, the show is on every week, so it would get pretty boring. Uh, and also, I, I, talking about oneself is never really very enjoyable. But I did want to talk about one aspect of uh, my initial conversion experience, which has to do with divine providence, and then to go on to talk about divine providence and what I learned in that experience and what other, uh, what saints have said about divine providence, because I think that um, it's very, very, very easy, uh, especially these days, to lose sight of the fact that God is in charge of absolutely everything and that nothing happens without his will. So that's basically, I hope, to be the theme of the show. So let me start with the experience in which I learned this. At the time, I was uh, in my early 30s. I was a uh, marketing professor at Harvard Business School, although I had grown up uh, Jewish and actually quite devout at some points in my um, adolescence. I lost my faith in university, and so by now I was essentially an atheist. And I was just walking in nature, um, feeling pretty glum one day, when I received the most extraordinary experience of my life, which was that from one moment to the next, as I was walking along, the veil between earth and heaven disappeared, and I found myself in the presence of God, very knowingly in the presence of God, and looking back over my life, as though I will, as I will look back over my life after death in the presence of God, seeing everything in its true light. And one of the things I saw in this experience was how wrong I had been to go through life kind of bemoaning the fact that this happened or that happened, and if only that hadn't happened, then I would be happy today, or if only this hadn't happened, then I would be happy today, that nothing could be further from the truth, that absolutely everything that had happened to me in my life had been the most perfect thing that could have been arranged coming from the hands of an all-knowing, all-loving God, not only including those things that had caused the most suffering at the time, but especially those things that had caused the most suffering at the time. Um, and uh, I can't really justify that theology on the basis of my experience. In, in other words, it was simply a part of the revelation and I, I saw it very clearly and was very convinced of it, needless to say. And um, this was all new to me because it, it, it's not with, contained within Jewish theology, this sense of the total overarching nature of divine providence. But I saw the truth of that with more solidity and more reality than I saw the ground I was walking on or the trees that I was passing or whatever. And of course, since then, it's a struggle to maintain that perspective, but that's what I want to talk about because I think that there's no successful way, uh, frankly, to walk in faith with God if one loses, loses the thread of that conviction that everything that happens is intentionally designed by him. Now, let me just say one thing about that. Obviously, God does not want us to sin. It's not that everything we do is the most perfect thing that we could do. It's that everything that comes to meet us, you can imagine it like a, um, you know, like, like you're, you're walking forward and there is this movie playing of the things that are coming to meet you. And everything that comes to meet you is perfectly designed by God to be the most perfect thing in the context of God knowing how you will respond. So he already knows how you will respond before it happens, and therefore he's designing the circumstances to bring about the greatest possible fruit in the long run, already knowing how you will respond. Um, let me try to back this up with some sources with a little more authority than yours truly. Uh, first of all, let me 
um, just read a very beautiful prayer, which is said every day by the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy. That's St. Faustina's order. And I know that many of you have probably been listening to the uh, show, the three three o'clock hour show on Divine Mercy. So this is that order of of very very beautiful um, pious nuns. And every every morning after the morning prayer, after the liturgy of the hours for the morning prayer, they recite this prayer: Heavenly Father, nothing happens without your will. May your will be the delight of my heart the food of my soul, the light of my intellect, and the strength of my will. Allow me to unite myself with your will, Lord. Let your power work in me and strengthen me so that every day I may be able to fulfill everything that you expect from me. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I think that if we fight God's will as it's reflected in the events that come to meet us over the course of the day, we basically kind of drain our strength and drain our faith, which is why they pray, may your will be the delight of my heart, the food of my soul, the light of my intellect, and the strength of my will. Because if we are able to embrace everything that happens during the course of the day as God's most perfect will for us, then we can, in fact, then it can become the food of our soul, the light of our intellect, and the strength of our will as the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy say um, in that prayer. And let me, um, by the way, the, the context for saying this is that, um, first of all, everyone's life is full of suffering um, in one way or the other. And if there are any listeners who are too young to realize that, in other words, perhaps, you know, in their teens or early 20s, I assure you, that by the time you're the age of our older listeners, you will realize that. And so, you know, the, the, the central nut to crack to live a life of faith is how do you reconcile divine providence, an all-powerful, all-loving God who wants nothing but to make us happy in our own true good with the amount of suffering? And, of course, the, the key to that is that suffering is actually probably the most valuable single aspect of life. In other words, suffering bears more fruit for our eternity and for the salvation of the world, for the salvation of sinners and for the redemption of the world, so to speak, than anything else. Um, and one has to realize that in order to be able to accept all of the suffering which comes as being in itself um, an expression of divine providence. Uh, St. Padre Pio is famous for having said, if we knew the true value of suffering, we would never pray for anything else. So now I, let me read from um, a, a very beautiful, pious book called Abandonment to Divine Providence by an author named Jean-Pierre de Cossade, who wrote in the late 18th century. And this book was a kind of the night table book you know, favorite uh, spiritual reading of uh, a number of saints and very, very uh, prominent pious Catholics. Um, and so I just want to read a, a, a few paragraphs, a few pages from this book. The entire book is, of course, uh, it's called Abandonment to Divine Providence. It is, it is kind of a um, pious instructional manual on abandoning ourselves to divine providence and seeing the crosses of daily life and our daily day after day duties as the most perfect expression of the will of God and our response to them as being the most pos pleasing possible thing that we could do for God, um, despite the, the uh, triviality or baseness with which they may appear. All one has to think is actually is the daily life of the great of the great religious saints. I mean, think of Saint Therese of Lisieux, you know, whose days were basically consumed in in doing laundry and sweeping floors and and doing embroidery and so forth, which is true of virtually all of the saint monks and nuns. And yet their faithful performance of their daily duties was for them. I don't want to say the deepest form of prayer, but the ultimate 
in some sense, the ultimate form of their prayer and consecration to God. And we who live in the world, the challenge is to approach our somewhat more uh, chaotic responsibilities and crosses in the same light. So let me go to um, uh, Jean-Pierre de Cossade, Abandonment to Divine Providence. In this state of self-abandonment, in this path of simple faith, everything that happens to our soul and body, all that occurs in all the affairs of life has the aspect of death. This should not surprise us. What do we expect? It is natural. God has his plans for souls, and he carries them out very successfully, though they are well disguised. Under the name of disguise are such things as misfortune, illness, and spiritual weakness. But in the hands of God, everything flourishes and turns to good. He arranges the accomplishment of his highest designs by means which deeply wound our natural feelings. Quote, this is the quote from Romans chapter 8, verse 28 of St. Paul. We know that by turning everything to their good, God cooperates with all those who love him. He brings life out of the shadow of death, and when, with human weakness, we are afraid, faith, which sees good in all things and knows that all is for the best, remains full of a confident courage. As we know that God's activities include everything, direct everything, and do everything apart from what is sinful, the duty of faith is to adore, love, and receive with joy all those activities. Full of joy and confidence, we must ignore the deception of appearances and so enjoy the triumph of faith. In this way, I assure you, you will honor God and treat him as God. Let me just interject a little bit there. Not that I can add anything really to that, but think of it. Imagine that you're driving along and God forbid some drunk driver plows into the side of your car. If you think, you know, darn, why did that have to happen to me? What a disaster. You know, are you treating God as God? Are you recognizing God as sovereign over everything that happens and as watching over you and taking care of you and arranging everything in your life? You know, are you honoring God and treating God as God if you reject the trials, misfortunes, disasters that arrive to meet you in the course of the day. In other words, that the crosses that he sends you. By the way, I know I'm talking the talk, not walking the walk. I'm talking to myself also. Um, I, I think or I fear that one would almost have to be a saint to maintain this perspective. But my fervent hope, of, of course, that that is um, that is what we're all wishing for is to become saints. So that's no reason to turn away from useful instruction and in how to, you know, take a baby step forward in the right direction. Okay. So going back to abandonment to divine providence, to live by faith is to live joyfully, to live with assurance, untroubled by doubts and with complete confidence in all we have to do and suffer at each moment by the will of God. We must realize that it is in order to stimulate and sustain this faith that God allows the soul to be buffeted and swept away by the raging torrent of so much distress, so many troubles, so much embarrassment and weakness, and so many setbacks. For it is essential to have faith to find God behind all this. The divine life is neither seen nor felt. But there is never a moment when it is not acting in an unknown but very sure manner. It is hidden under such things as death of the body, damnation of the soul, and the general disorder of all earthly affairs. Faith is nourished and strengthened by these happenings. It cuts through them all and takes the hand of God, who keeps it alive through everything except sin. A faithful soul should always advance with confidence, regarding all these things as the disguise God assumes for his immediate presence would terrify us. But God, who comforts the humble, always gives us, however great our feeling of desolation, an inner assurance that we need be afraid of nothing as long as we allow him to act and abandon ourselves to him. Although we are distressed at the loss of our beloved, we somehow feel that we still possess him, and in spite of all our troubles and disturbance, there is something deep-seated within us which keeps us steadfastly, 
steadfastly attached to God. Martha tried to please Jesus by cooking him good food, but Mary was content to receive him and listen to him. Yet he deceived even her, and when, after the resurrection, she looked for him as she imagined he would be, he appeared to her as a gardener. When the apostles saw Jesus, they thought he was a ghost. God disguises himself so that we may reach that pure faith which enables us to recognize him under any appearance. Let us stumble and find neither roads nor paths in the darkness. Formerly we found you in the peace of solitude and prayer, in various religious exercises, in suffering, in helping our neighbors, in turning away from social and business affairs. We have done all we can to please you, but now we can no longer find you in these things as once we did. May our failure compel us to find you in yourself and then in all things and everywhere. How mistaken we are not to see you in everything that is good and in every creature. Why should we seek you in any other way than that by which you wish to give yourself under any other forms than those you have chosen for your sacrament? The less convincing they seem, the more merit there is in our obedience and faith. You make a root below the soil flourish, and you can make fruitful the darkness in which you keep me. So my soul, like a tiny root, will stay hidden in you, and your power will make it send forth branches, leaves, blossoms, and fruit, which, though invisible to you, will nourish and delight the souls of others. When they come to rest and refresh themselves in your shade, give them the fruit they want, not what you think they should have. May all that is grafted on you by grace take and ultimately produce its own individual fruit. Give all you have to all who come, but you yourself continue in your state of self-abandonment and indifference. So here the author is comparing the soul of the uh, person who wants to live with God, who wants to follow the, the, the path of God, to a seed in the ground. And a seed in the ground is in total darkness and has no idea what's going on, but somehow in that darkness, it's, you know, it sprouts forth. You know, there's germination which takes place. There are all of these hidden processes which take place before uh, there is any transformation which is at all visible. And that is the state of our souls. And that is what God is, is doing to our souls. And that's what he's doing to the, our souls largely through the trials and challenges which he sends us. And frankly, we're no more able to understand why he's doing it and what he's doing than the seed is able to understand, you know, how it's going to become a tree. But the trick to living in faith, so to speak, is to live in the continual assurance that whatever is happening, it is exactly that. It is what God has arranged for the nourishment and development of our soul and for the uh, salvation of the souls of others. Um, then let me go back to uh, de Cossade, because he, then he uses another metaphor, uh, that of the silkworm. So reading from Abandonment to Divine Providence, Stay, little silkworm, in the dark and narrow cell of your comfortless cocoon until the warmth of grace enables you to grow and break out. Eat then every leaf grace offers you, and in this activity do not look back at the peace you have lost. The moment God's will tells you to stop, do so. You will experience alternating spells of rest and activity and changes in yourself which you cannot understand. You will lose all interest in all the old spiritual exercises. You will die and be resurrected and assume the apparel that God has designed for you. So spin away in secret working away at what you can neither see nor feel. Your whole being will be perturbed, you will condemn yourself for being in a fret, and you will secretly envy your companions still lying as if dead, because they have not yet arrived where you are. You continue to admire them, although you have left them behind, but continue to spin a silk in which princes of the church and of the world, and indeed a multitude of souls, will glory to be arrayed. And after that, what will happen to you, little silkworms? How will you emerge? What a miracle of grace it is that souls are molded so differently. Who can possibly know where grace will lead them? And who could guess what nature does with a silkworm if he had not seen it? All it needs is leaves, and nature does the rest. 
So this is a, another metaphor, another image which de Cossade is using. And um, it's interesting because in this passage, de Cossade is actually referring, uh, you know, at least in part, to the fact that the stages of the spiritual life change over time. Um, I think many of us know this. I, 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 you know that I'm a convert. Some of you are probably reverts, are, are cradle Catholics who fell away from the faith but returned to the faith. Um, there are various mechanisms for doing so. Uh, I, I did a cursio. Some of you may be cursiistas who, who have gone through a cursio. You may have had other experiences which brought you back to the fullness of the faith. But, of course, it's very typical that when God first reveals himself to us and calls us to the faith or back to the faith, he does so in a honeymoon-like period, which is full of sweetness and light and joy and almost a sensible presence of God and, and a tremendous amount of euphoria and happiness and infused faith and so forth. That stage doesn't last forever. Uh, that stage passes away. Uh, once the hook is in, basically, you know, God has to bring us from being you know, babies drinking, excuse the uh, expression, but drinking milk at their mother's breast to being full-grown adults through taking us through various other stages, including perhaps a stage of a lot of reading and and uh, perhaps not contemplating contemplation, but a lot of, you know, reading and, and kind of quiet prayer and absorption in the things of God, which is also very wonderful. But after that stage will come stages of dryness, stages of feeling deserted, stages of feeling a, a total um, deadness of faith, a kind of exertion of will to hang on to the thread of faith because we can't find any natural belief within us. Uh, in other words, you know, we've, we've lost the, the reality of our understanding of the existence of God and we're holding on to the faith, the truths of the faith through a sheer act of will. And this is all part of the maturing in faith process. That's part of the path of developing in, in spirituality in union with God. And so de Cossade is saying essentially, you know, if, you know, if you're in one of these stages, don't look back and say, what did I do wrong to no longer be in the honeymoon stage? Or what did I do long, wrong to no longer be in the cocoon stage? And not to look back and envy people who are in the honeymoon stage or in the cocoon stage, but to realize that if we are, in fact, trying to align ourselves with God, if we have chosen God, then everything that is happening to us is God's most perfect will for our development, including that dryness, including that, I don't want to call it faithlessness, but that requirement to hold on to our faith by a sheer act of will. And, you know, so he uses the image of the silkworm. We can think of the uh, caterpillar who becomes a butterfly. You know, what traumatic changes are going on for that poor, you know, caterpillar? You know, what a mess of unpleasant experiences. And, of course, that caterpillar has no awareness, no understanding that it's on its way to becoming this beautiful butterfly and all of these unpleasant transformations, which seem to be going in the wrong direction, are part of that process. And that's exactly my, my hypothesis, is that God has given us caterpillars turning into butterflies as a picture of exactly what he does uh, with the human soul and turning it into what he intends to turn our souls into. And in fact, I, I, I don't have the exact quote from St. Paul. I think most of you know it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor can the mind imagine what God has in mind for those who love him. In other words, what the true transformation is going to be for our souls in heaven. And all of these uh, crosses and all of this dryness and all of these challenges in the religious life that God leads us through are, in fact, part of that very beautiful, very generous um, uh, divine mercy and providence. So with that, we've come to uh, about the halfway point of the hour. I usually uh, take a short break. Let's be back in a few moments.
Listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman. Welcome back. And I am talking today about abandonment to divine providence and the connection between that and the theme of the show, Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, is in part that my initial uh, conversion experience, which was a uh, revelation-based experience involved being shown the totality of divine providence. So I wish to speak about that, and also because I have to remind myself about it, as we all do. And so this is a way of uh, also preaching to myself, so to speak. So I've been reading from a very excellent a spiritual classic by uh, Jean-Pierre de Cossade named Abandonment, called Abandonment to Divine Providence. And I will continue reading passages and then uh, speaking a little bit about them. There is a kind of holiness in which all the messages from God are bright and clear, but there is also that state of utterly quiescent faith in which all that God tells us is wrapped in the impenetrable darkness which veils his throne and all we feel is confused and shadowy. In this condition, we are often afraid, like the prophet, of running smack into a rock as we advance through this darkness. We should have no fear. We are on the right path and led by God. There is nothing safer and less likely to lead us astray than the darkness of faith. Yet we want to know which way must we go amidst this darkness, wherever we wish. It does not matter. We cannot get lost when there is no road to be found. 
nor can we head for any particular destination, for we can see nothing at all. This is very interesting, very interesting concept and very interesting passage, because what de Cossade is saying is that when we are in this darkness of faith, when God is veiling himself completely, there is a very natural human tendency to get in a state of high anxiety about which way are we supposed to go, which turn are we supposed to take. And yet, of course, God doesn't simultaneously require us to do something and not give us the means to do it. So if he is leading us in complete darkness, we don't have to worry about not being able to see. He's taking care of it. Um, and and, and uh, this, he'll, he's going to... Okay, I will continue, and it will become even clearer. So continuing reading. So come, my soul, come and let us go to God by self-abandoning by self-abandonment. Let us acknowledge that we are incapable of becoming holy by our own efforts and put our trust in God, who would not have taken away our ability to walk unless he was to carry us in his arms. What, Lord, is the use to us of being able to see, to feel, and to understand, as we are not making our journey on foot, but are being carried in your arms? So this is really the explanation of this darkness of faith, where we are unable to see what God wants from us. If we are unable to see what path God wants us to take, it must be because he's carrying us in his arms. In other words, he knows we can't see, he knows we can't decide for ourselves, and therefore he is taking charge of it and he is carrying us. And the last thing we have to worry about is what path we should be taking. Um, as, as de Cossad said, he would not have taken away our ability to walk unless he was to carry us in his arms. What is the use of being able to see if we are not making our journey on foot, but are being carried in God's arms? So continuing with de, de Cossad, our trust and our faith will deepen the darker it grows, and as we pass great gorges and jagged peaks and across vast deserts and become terrified by persecution, famine, and drought and visions of hell and purgatory, we have only to glance at you, to feel safe amidst the greatest peril. We shall forget the roads and what they are like, forget ourselves and abandon ourselves entirely to the wisdom, the goodness, and the power of our guide, and to remember only to love you and avoid the slightest sin and fulfill all our obligations. This, my beloved, is all your children have to do. You take charge of everything else. And the more terrible this everything is, the more surely do they experience your presence. So very, very, very good advice when we are in darkness that we have to remember only to love God, avoid the slightest sin, and fulfill all our obligations. Those are the only things God is asking us to um, discern, so to speak, if he's not giving us the light to discern anything else. Those are things that are always there to love God, to avoid sin, and to fulfill our obligations. If he's not giving us any more light to see anything else, to see any roadside signs, to see what forks to take in the road, to see what's around the next bend or anything, the reason he's not giving us that light is because all we have to do is what we already know we have to do, which is love God, avoid sin, and fulfill our obligations. So going back to the Cossad, no matter what troubles, unhappiness, worries, upsets, doubts, and needs harass souls who have lost all confidence in their own powers, they can all be overcome by the marvelous, hidden, and unknown power of the divine action. The more perplexing the situation, the more we can hope for a happy solution. The heart says, all will be well. God has the matter in hand. We need fear nothing. Our very fear and sense of desolation are verses in this hymn of darkness. We delight in singing every syllable of them, knowing that all ends with the glory be to the Father. So we follow our wandering paths, and the very darkness acts as our guide, and our doubts serve to reassure us. The more puzzled Isaac was at not finding a lamb for the sacrifice, the more confidently did Abraham leave all to providence. So the very darkness acts as our guide and our doubts serve to reassure us. The very darkness that we are in is evidence that God is in charge and that God is working with us, 
and is working the mysterious transformation in our souls and is taking care of everything that we otherwise would have to know and understand and discern and know to do. Uh, because in this darkness, all we have to do is love God, avoid sin, and fulfill our duties. So back to De Kossad. Let us gain greater knowledge of the divine activity. When God takes from us the things we can see and understand, he always returns them under another form. He never lets us want. It is as though a man has supported a friend openly and generously, and then, for the friend's own good, suddenly pretended he could not provide for him, yet continued to furnish secretly all he needed. Now this friend, knowing nothing of this mysterious strategy of love, would feel upset and brood unhappily on the behavior of his former benefactor. But as soon as he began to understand what was really happening, God only knows all the feelings of joy, love, gratitude, embarrassment, and wonder that filled his soul. And how much more affection will he have for his benefactor? And think how this trial will strengthen his feeling for his friend and brace him against any similar shocks. It is easy to draw a lesson from all this. Where God is concerned, the more we seem to lose, the more we gain. The more he strips us of natural things, the more he showers us with supernatural gifts. We certainly loved him a little for these gifts, but when we could no longer be aware of them, we loved him for himself alone. He appears to take away these gifts so that he can give them the greatest gift of all, the one that is most precious because it embraces within itself all the others. Any soul which has once and for all completely submitted itself to God should always interpret everything favorably. Amen. Amen. God doesn't want us to love him for his gifts, although he's very generous with them. Um, but because he wants us to love him for himself and because he wants to affect deep transformations in our souls, there comes a time when he withdraws the sensible gifts, the perceivable gifts, the visible gifts. And um, I, I don't want to say forces us, but but um, gives us the opportunity to cling to him by blind faith and to love him for himself alone and thereby strengthen our soul and strengthen our love for him, which is, in fact, the greatest of all the gifts. So back to the Kossad. God and the soul work together and all goes well when the soul is healthy. For though the success of God's action depends, of course, on him, it can be spoiled if the soul proves unfaithful. God's achievement is like the front of a lovely tapestry. The worker employed on such a tapestry seems only the, sees only the back as he adds stitch after stitch with his needle. Yet all these stitches are slowly creating a magnificent picture, which appears in all its glory only when every stitch is done and it is viewed from the right side. But all this beauty cannot be seen as it is being created. It is the same with the self-abandoned soul, it sees only God and its duty. To fulfill this duty, moment by moment, consists in adding tiny stitches to the work. Yet it is, it is by these stitches that God accomplishes those marvels of which we sometimes catch a glimpse now, but will, which will not be truly known until the great day of eternity. How good and wise are the ways of God. All that is sublime and exalted, great and admirable in the task of achieving holiness and perfection, he has kept for his own power. But everything that is small, simple, and easy, he leaves us to tackle with the help of grace. So there is not a single person who cannot reach easily the highest degree of perfection by performing every duty, no matter how commonplace, with eager love. Wow, so let me go back over this a little bit. And by the way, again, if, if anyone wishes to call in, the number here is 866-333-6279. Here, de Cossade is um, comparing divine providence, in some sense, the weaving of a tapestry. This is a metaphor, by the way, that Padre Pio also used, that during the course of this life, it is as though we're weaving a tapestry and we can only see the back of the tapestry, which is where the stitcher of the tapestry is working. Um, we, we have no idea of the pattern, of the beauty of the pattern that is being created on the front of the tapestry. And it's only after we die and see 
the the work done on our souls from the perspective of heaven, see the tapestry from the front, so to speak, that we will see the incredible contribution to beauty that was made by every one of those, I don't want to say ugly stitches, you know, but ugly, you know, kind of patternless stitches on the back of the tapestry. Their Their full meaning will come, will blossom forth in the beauty that's created on the front of the tapestry. Meanwhile, in the course of this life, we're uh, drudging away at the back of the tapestry, just doing stitch after stitch after stitch, just trusting that God knows what he's doing with the design of the tapestry, but all we're doing is actually faithfully following our, our daily duty. That's what it looks like to us. But the circumstances that God is arranging for us are transforming or are, are, are choreographing our daily duties into being exactly the stitches that are needed to create the most beautiful possible tapestry for all eternity, which is what our souls are being transformed into. So as de Quassade says here, um, all that is sublime, exalted, great, and admirable in the task of achieving holiness and perfection within our souls, for our souls, God has kept for his own power. So everything... You know, all of the design, all of, this, all of the knowledge, all of the cleverness in what has to be done, God has reserved for himself. He has kept it within his own power. Um, everything that is small, simple, and easy, he leaves us to tackle with the help of grace. In other words, the design of the tapestry, all of the um, intelligence that has to be applied to what our souls need, God is taking care of. He's leaving something very simple and primitive and easy for us which is simply um, loving God, avoiding sin, and doing our duty. And he's weaving that very simple-to-follow set of instructions into this most beautiful tapestry, which, to mix metaphors, is you know transforming our earthworm cells, our caterpillar cells, into the butterflies that he wants for all eternity. Um, forgive the, the, <laughs> the trite tried attempt at poetry there. Um, there, uh, I will, uh, for one final time probably, give the phone number here if anyone wants to join in. It's 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And um, otherwise, I will, or until, until and unless there's a call, I will continue reading a little more from de Quassade's Abandonment to Divine Providence. The unique and absolutely certain action of God is always applied to a submissive soul at exactly the right time, and this soul at once reacts as it should. It accepts all that has happened, all that is happening, and cooperates with everything except what is sinful. There are times when the soul acts consciously and times when it acts quite unknowingly, being instinctively moved to say, do, or ignore certain things without having any apparent reason for such behavior. Often the motive force is something quite natural, and the simple soul sees nothing mysterious about it and acts through pure chance, necessity, or convenience. Neither this soul nor any other sees anything strange about it. Yet it is God, through the intellect, the wisdom, or the advice of friends, who is using these ordinary means. He makes them his own instruments and employs them in such a way that no plans of any enemies directed against his chosen souls can possibly succeed. To deal with a simple soul is to deal with God. What can be done against the unfathomable ways of the Almighty? God takes over the cause of the simple soul, and then it has nothing to worry about, no intrigues to fear, no need to keep a careful watch on other people. It is carefree and rests in the bridegroom's arms, safe and at peace. That is how Jesus Christ lived in Judea, and this is how he continues to live in simple souls. With them, he is generous and gentle, unreserved and friendly. He neither fears nor needs anyone, for he sees all creatures in his Father's hands and knows they are bound to serve him. Some give this service by their evil passions, some by their holy deeds, others by their glad obedience. It is all wonderfully arranged, nothing is lacking, nor is there too much of anything there is just what there should be of both good and evil. At every moment, God's will produces what is needful for the task in hand, and the simple soul, instructed by faith, 
finds everything as it should be and wants neither more nor less than what it has. It never ceases to praise the divine hand for the way it smooths the path ahead. It receives both friends and enemies with the same kindness, just as Jesus treated everyone as God's agent. We have need of no one, yet we need everyone. God wills that everything and everyone are necessary, and we must accept them from him just as they are, receiving them kindly and humbly. We must be simple with the simple and kind with the root and coarse. This is what St. Paul taught. For the weak I made myself weak. I made myself all things to all men in order to save some at any cost. And Jesus Christ practiced it perfectly. I will interject here. Just imagine that Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. Jesus knew who Judas was. He knew that Judas was, you know, stealing from the the uh, money for the poor. He knew that uh, Judas was negotiating with the um, high priest to to betray him, and yet um, he received him, as de Cossade says, kindly and humbly. Um, he knew he accepted everything as coming from the hand of God. Of course, he, being divine, had a perhaps a bit easier time. Um, maintaining confidence in that truth, but um, nothing disturbed his peace and nothing caused him to react to the uh, situation, to the unpleasantness of the other person in an uncharitable way because he knew and understood and saw everything as coming from the hand of God, whether pleasant or unpleasant, whether coming through love of a faithful disciple or coming through betrayal of an unfaithful disciple, both were coming from the hand of God. Back to de Cossade. Only grace can give a soul that supernatural quality, which enables it to show such a detailed and suitable understanding of the nature of each person. It is something never learned from books. There is something truly visionary about it, which comes from a special revelation and the teaching of the Holy Spirit, The soul must have reached the highest state of self-abandonment before it can understand it and must be utterly detached from every project and from any affair or concern, no matter how holy they may be. The soul must concentrate on the supreme business of life, submission to God's will, so that it can give itself up to fulfilling the obligations of its circumstances. Let us leave the Holy Spirit to act upon it without thinking of what he is doing and being well content to know nothing about it confident that all that happens in the world is only for the benefit of souls obedient to God's will. Reading this, I'm reminded of a famous um, saying of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta, that um, God doesn't call us to be successful. He only calls us to be faithful. Fidelity Fidelity to what we know is right, fidelity to our duty, fidelity to loving God, fidelity to avoiding sin is actually all that he's calling us to do. The success or failure of any of our endeavors, even the most holy endeavors for the greater glory of God, um, are not our concern. They're not our concern. We don't have to worry about that. The outcome is in God's hands. All we have to worry about is, or how all we have to concern ourselves about is fidelity to our duty and loving God and avoiding sin. And if for some mysterious reason, a failure of the project is, uh, God, if God knows for some reason that we don't understand that the failure of the project is of more value to him than the success of the project, we should be indifferent to whether the project succeeds or fails. And this certainly um, extends to anything having to do with working for God or ministry or charitable activities or even the most noble charitable activities, even starting a religious order, even, you know, going on EWTN and preaching to 20 million people at a shot. You know, if if total abject failure is of more value to God, then we should be indifferent as to whether the project succeeds or fails. And in that indifference becomes a tremendous uh, freedom and freedom from self-consciousness and freedom from anxiety uh, because all we are called to do is be faithful, not not successful. So I think I've pretty much come to the end of the time. I, I do feel like uh, trying to uh, kind of conclude 
Uh, I do not know, unfortunately, the prayer by heart, and I didn't know I would end here, so I don't have it in front of me. But St. Claude de la Colombière, who was the spiritual director of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, had a very beautiful, a very beautiful prayer, the, the gist of which was that all of his confidence rests in simply his confidence in God. He's not confident in his holiness. He's not confident in anything that happens in the world. The, the total repository of his confidence, is, I mean, the only thing he's confident in is remaining confident in God. And if he remains confident in God, nothing else is needed. So um, let that be my prayer for us all, um, uh, for us all today. Um, many of us, I, I know that I am facing a concatenation of trials more than I'm used to, and many of my friends who are trying to be faithful Catholics walking with God are having um, the heavens open up and and a tremendous amount of, of trials and crosses pour down on them. I think it may be because God needs a particular uh, abundance of uh, sacrifices and mortifications and suffering right now on the part of his faithful ones for the graces that he needs, um, given the rather dark state of the world, the graces that he wants to pour out on mankind to turn things around. But um, I, I chose this topic for today's show because I suspect that it's not just me and my immediate circle who are in the midst of this firestorm of, of crosses, but it might be many of you out there in the listening audience. So I wanted to um, give this little preaching session to me as well as to you, and I hope that you have found it uh, useful and that it builds your confidence that if you um, love God, avoid sin, and are faithful to your daily duties, you are doing everything absolutely right, and the rest is God's problem, and he is more than capable of handling it and taking care of it. And his intention from the beginning is to work all of that to the good for those who love God, all of the events, misfortunes, disasters, blessings of our lives woven together uh, for the good of those who love God. So with that, I will say goodbye for now. You've been listening to Roy Showman on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And I hope you join us again next week, same time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.